You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. The time has come for America to hear the truth. We are going to stand with them, and not only are we going to fight for their rights, but we're going to stand up for our rights here in our state, in our homes, and in our community. United States of America is not going to be decided in the courts. It's not going to be decided in Congress. It's not going to be decided on talk radio, and it sure is not going to be decided on Fox News. For the union makes us Good morning, Tennessee Valley. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller. And we are broadcasting from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today, we are talking about some local stories. We are talking to Zach Patton, a member of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, about supply chains. And asking the questions, are unions good? With Michael Yaffe, a conservative host on WVNN in Huntsville. Uh, unions are good, by the way, is the answer. All this and more on today's Valley Labor Report. Uh, folks, if you haven't gotten enough of us, uh, if you haven't gotten enough of us by the time we wrap here, on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us online. We are all over the place at the Valley Labor Report on Twitter, on YouTube, wherever you find your podcasts. We are all over the place. So anywhere you want to find us, uh, you can find us there. We also have, uh, if you find us on Twitter, you can go to where we sell some stickers. We used to have some hats, but we sold out. Um, And our stickers are USA and Union Made. We've got some merch coming up uh, uh, pretty soon. We've been working with some artists, uh, some local and some not. Tabitha Arnold has uh, has made a really cool design for us, and we are really excited to drop that. I hope that we'll be able to get it uh, get it out so that it can be bought before Christmas. I don't know that it'll actually be able to be under your tree, though. Uh, so, you know, sorry about that, but we do what we can here. Uh, hello, Huntsville. I'm really glad to be back. <laughs> this is a Adam, I can hear you in the background. I don't know if you're going out on WVNN, but uh, we're glad to be back. This is our first Saturday back in Huntsville on the radio since we went on hiatus. I was deployed uh, to New Orleans to support the recovery efforts for Hurricane Ida for about a month in New Orleans. Worked 712s. Uh, that's for the birds. Don't recommend it. Uh, <laughs> at least, at least as a long-term gig. For a month, it was fine, and and the paycheck was nice. Uh, but man, the people that do that like all the time works work six or seven days a week, twelve hours a day. That is for the birds. Um, doing that all the time. Don't recommend it, but uh, I'm glad for the opportunity to, to have uh, been able to help uh, my community members down south uh, recover from a, from a really, really bad storm. So, uh, but, but we're back, and we are going to be bringing you uh, the news as, as, uh, uh, from the point of view of working people uh, from our unions and uh, educating you about how you can make your life better uh, by joining a union. So, 
First off, let's get to some local stories uh, before we bring Zach on the line. Uh, we've got three local Alabama stories. Uh, we've got a lot of stuff happening here in Alabama. The first one, I want to give you an update on ULA. Uh, the United Launch Alliance is a rocket manufacturer in the North Alabama area, and they have been at the center of controversy over the past month or two about the vaccine mandate, uh, which is a little strange because they can't be the only folks enforcing the mandate. Like, can they? I mean, I don't know. But I, I haven't seen very much about any other employers, but ULA has been kind of all over the news. We spoke to David Story, a founding father of the Valley Labor Report and the last, and uh, currently the president of the union that represents manufacturing workers there. Uh, we talked to him last week. You can find that conversation online if you'd like to see it. But the big update is that since our conversation, a federal judge ruled against five ULA employees in their lawsuit against the company. Uh, when speaking to David um, this week after the after the ruling was handing, handed down, he told me that that is why they tell members to file suit as a last resort, and that's because uh, they're in the middle of arbitration right now. Um, the union has negotiated an arbitration process, and they're before uh, an arbitrator. And having a federal judge having already ruled in favor of the company is going to make arbitration much more difficult for the workers to win. Therefore, David is pessimistic at this point at their chances of being reinstated. Uh, they're not terminated as of yet. They are on unpaid administrative leave. Uh, they do still have their health care, but he's he's pessimistic about their chances of reinstated, though the union will continue to exercise all avenues available to protect the jobs of those workers through arbitration and through the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, unfair labor practices process. They filed a ULP several weeks ago. Now, um, I'm really kind of confused about all of this, and I'll tell you why. The suit seemed to me to circle around primarily religious exemptions. Uh, saying that the vaccine was manufactured and or tested on cell lines derived from stem cells of aborted fetuses. And there was one medical claim um, that was something about like a general anxiety disorder. That's very strange. And those are obviously like pretty weak arguments, right, as to why you like as to why you should not be fired, especially in an at-will employment state like Alabama, where you can be fired for any reason or no reason at all. Uh, so, you know, that though the arguments presented in the lawsuit are kind of strange, um, it, it seems to me. Uh, I think that kind of tracks with the lawyer's, like, track record. My understanding is that he's, like, a very kind of eclectic... Uh, I think he works for, like, the Foundation of Moral Law, like, like uh, 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 Roy Moore's organization, I think, I think. To me, the strong argument is that the workers and the company had already made an agreement on reasonable accommodations. I got the contract language from David, and uh, look, none of the contract, like, specifically commits the company to accept any accommodations, but... There is a process laid out, a very specific process laid out for both medical and religious accommodations. And if the company agreed 
to that process, like they signed their name on the dotted lines on in black and white, saying that this is the process by which workers will request accommodations, medically or otherwise. Uh, if they agreed to that process with no intent to grant any exemptions, which seems to be the case, because there were th- there were thirteen. Uh, there were 13 requests for accommodations filed among the workforce of 350. There were only 13 that requested accommodations. And not a single one was granted. That's why a, an unfair labor practice was filed against the company and the union is going through arbitration. And let's take a look at some of these folks who have requested medical exemption. One fellow has leukemia. He has had COVID, and his doctor advised him not to get the vaccine, and he had an antibody test showing that he still had the antibodies. The contract language agreed to by the company even said that you would not even have to be tested if you had good results on an antibody test and you haven't had the vaccine. Another of these people requesting medical exemption has cancer. He's been going through chemotherapy for several months, and his doctor also advised him not to get the vaccine. And there are two or three other people that fall into categories such as that. And if these folks don't fall, like if they don't qualify for medical exemptions, then nobody would, right? Nobody would. And... That is totally anti-science because nobody in the scientific community has said that every single person needs to get vaccinated. Nobody has said 100% of the United States population needs to get vaccinated. In fact, and that's never been the case with any vaccine. In fact, one of the reasons why it is so important for people to get vaccinated who can be vaccinated, people like myself, my brother Adam, our uh, uh, the fellow who works here at Spice Radio, Ben, the reason it's so important for folks like us to get vaccinated is to help the people like, help protect the people like the brother with leukemia and cancer who can't get vaccinated safely at this point. That's one of the reasons why it's so important for people who can get vaccinated to get vaccinated is because there is always with any vaccine a subset of the population for whom it is not safe to get vaccinated. And if the company is not willing to make accommodations for people like that, I mean, that's there's just there's no sense in it. It does not make any sense. And they agreed to a process for accommodations. But instead of granting these accommodations, which are very reasonable, I think, I mean, like exceedingly reasonable, instead of granting those accommodations, they want to terminate every single one of these employees. I mean, that, and they did this. They placed the fellow with leukemia on unpaid administrative leave the week before Thanksgiving. They're doing this before the holidays. I mean, there's there's no reason for it. So look, this lawsuit that was filed in, in that was uh, uh, that 
the judge ruled in favor of the company. It doesn't seem to me like they put their best foot forward. The best foot seems to me to be that the company agreed to a process for making accommodations for workers, and they are completely ignoring their commitment, written in black and white, where they signed on the dotted line. And for what purpose? I mean, we're talking 13 people out of a bargaining unit of 350. Having them get vaccinated will not make the workplace measurably safer. And of course, ULA doesn't care about that. These people worked at the work site during the pandemic for two years while the bosses worked from home in their living rooms, in their pajamas. The workers took care of each other, following precautions well enough that there has not been been a single outbreak at the facility. Is it cost that's making them terminate these these employees? No, of course not, because weekly tests and masks for 13 people is a drop in the bucket in the budget of United Launch Alliance. And compared to the costs of hiring cops to stand guard outside the facility after the protests against the mandate, uh, I mean, th- there's just... <laughs> like the cost is is infinitesimal when you compare it to the cost of of hiring cops to stand outside and threaten and intimidate employees who have exercised their right to protest. I can't think of anything other than vindictiveness than vindictiveness that motivates them to do this. Frankly, and and <laughs> you know something that the judge says is is that um, the workers did not prove that the harm done to them by losing a job is going to be more than the harm done to the company by keeping unvaccinated people uh, employed. And that just doesn't make sense because, of course, of course, it is worse for a working person to be without a job than for the company to have to pay for tests. I mean, good grief. Good grief. And that, like, and frankly, like, that doesn't even matter. Like, the burden that it places on the company is irrelevant when they have agreed to do a thing. When they've agreed to do a thing. I do not, as an individual consumer, get to agree to something like a mortgage or student loans and say, oh, man, this, the burden is too high. I'm just not going to pay it and then have a federal judge rule in my favor. That is a privilege that is only given to the bosses, of course. So we're supporting David and the folks at ULA, and we're going to keep you updated. Um, and, and, you know, like I said, David and, uh, and the union there, they're, they're going to be fighting this. They're going to be taking it all the way. And I, I may be a bit more hopeful than David, of course. I mean, David's got more experience in this kind of stuff. So he, you know, but I just, I don't understand how you can, like, how uh, 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 the National Labor Relations Board is going to rule in favor of the company when the company clearly agreed to a process for accommodations for workers for this. Like, I don't I don't see how they lose. But, you know, I mean, it's the boss's courts. I will say, uh, I mean, um, to close this out. As I was preparing for today, uh, I thought I would check and see what conservative outlets are saying about this. And you would think they'd be all over it. I figured they would be, actually. I, I figured that most of the articles that um, I was going to find on this would be coming from, say, uh, Yellowhammer News or 1819 News, um, which are two of the you know maybe larger conservative propaganda sites. And um, uh, 
I couldn't find a single article on Yellowhammer News <laughs> or 1819, which which did act, which did surprise me. Uh, and you don't hear a lot about it on the radio, um, but you do see ULA press releases reprinted in full in Yellowhammer News. And uh, if you go to Yellowhammer News, uh, the homepage, you do see lots of ULA ads. So do with that information what you will. Adam, did you have anything that you wanted to add to that before we go to the next story? No, I, I just think it's it's a really good example of why it's important to have a union in the workplace, even with a daunting fight ahead of them. Uh, at least they do have a fight, uh, you know. And without that union, they're they're not going to have any chance of of, of trying to protect themselves and, and get reinstated. Right. And, and I think it's what you said at the at the top of the segment is so important. This is why healthy folks who can get the vaccine should get the vaccine to protect those people who cannot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's to request that your employer actually bargains with the employees and, uh, you know, executes mandates from the government if and when they come down in a way that's actually collaborative with the workers. That's right. not being anti-vax or anti-mandate by any means. No, so, no uh, it, it, it's not at all. And I don't want people to get like the wrong impression at all. Right. Okay? Yeah, we are I think very, I, we're, it's, it's important to say we're very pro-vaccine. The union is very pro-vaccine. They have been, before the mandate ever came out, strongly encouraging their members to get vaccinated, and they have been successful. The vaccination rate among bargaining unit employees at ULA is 97%. Wow. 97%. Of the 350 people that are represented by the Machinist Union, Local 44. Only 13 of them requested accommodations, many of them for medical reasons, some for religious reasons. The religious reasons are, frankly, less sympathetic uh, and and honestly a bit silly. But the medical exemptions are, but, are very, very legitimate. But, and you know, the company did agree. The company agreed to it. To to exactly. have an accommodation and exemption process. So there, there again, um, you know, companies can put whatever they want on paper. But unless you have the means to enforce that language and hold them accountable for violating it, you know, what's it good for? Exactly, exactly. And and uh, one of these days, here in the next few weeks, I want to get Dr. Uh, Mark Elaine Deary on. Uh, he's an epidemiologist. He is the founder of the radio station that we are on in New Orleans, um, and and he does some really good stuff. So I want to get him to talk to us about, about COVID at some point. So, uh, Poultry plant workers at Wayne Farms walked off the job last week after they were given a new contract offer that they did not feel was up to snuff, and uh, then they voted the contract down, which is very cool. We love to see workers recognize their worth and stand up for themselves. Uh, I have reached out to the union representing workers there, UFCW Local 1995. I've scheduled a chat with them next week to learn more about negotiations and how we can help. Um maybe get put in touch with some workers. In the meantime, I'll be relying on the reporting of others. Uh, Now, in the main, I am as big a critic of media as any other host on this station. And folks at AL.com did not disappoint. (laughs) In an article about the workers walking out and the workers voting down a contract offer, um, who does William Thornton, the business reporter, gross, for AL.com go to? The literal company PR person. 
and nobody else. <laughs> they didn't, didn't, it doesn't even look like he requested a comment from the workers or the union representing these workers. The only person that he talked to for this article was the company PR person. I mean, like, what? But that's a business reporter for you. WHT, however, did a great job. Kate Newsom actually talked to the workers. Crazy. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, and while she did talk to the company spokesperson, boo, it's understandable, even helpful to know what the company is saying as a consumer of information. You know, you want to see what the other side is saying. And the important thing to do when you do things like that is to contextualize what the company is saying with testimony from the workers, with facts on the ground. And Kate Newsom seems to have done that. So I appreciate her work. It was really good. You should check out her article on WHNT about the walkout and the contract rejection. The main issue from her reporting seems to be wages, with the new contract only offering $1 to $3 an hour raises. Working conditions were also mentioned. And the company said that uh, they can't afford to pay more. Um, (laughs) Now, um, Wayne Farms is not a publicly traded company. Unfortunately, so normally, a lot of times you would be able to, um, you know, to to look at the company financial information from like quarterly investor reports and and calls and things like that. But this is not a publicly traded company, so you can't do that. Um, they were acquired in 2015, though, so we do have some information from 2015. And in 2015, the CEO was making 12 million dollars a year the revenue was very high they were doing they were doing really good they were doing really good and unless wayne farms has been under since 2015 terrible management i mean absolutely like just horrid management they're doing better than they were in 2015, right? Um, the wholesale price of chicken has actually nearly doubled recently. Uh, executive pay has, of course, continued to increase since 2015. So unless Wayne Farms is a total anomaly, then they're doing quite well. And if they can't afford to pay more, If that's true, they shouldn't have any problem explaining to the public how much they bring in, how much their expenditures are, what profits they make, how much their executives make, and then how much their workers make and justify all that. But they're not coming out with that. They're just saying, and they hope that we take their word for it, that they can't afford to pay more. So, you know, I would say... Take that with a grain of salt unless they back it up because the workers are putting the information forward. They are explaining how much they're making, how much the raise is, and saying we do not feel like that is sufficient. And that's always the way these things goes, right? The workers, the unions are incredibly transparent. Oftentimes, the contracts are public information while... The company does everything that it do- that it can to um, impede information requests, keep information from the public, or misrepresent information to the public. So, you know, take that for what it is. We'll be uh, we'll be giving y'all an update here in the next couple of weeks after I've been able to talk to the union about that. But that's a very interesting story happening right in our backyard in Albertville. I, I used to be in Albertville all the time, so I- I'm interested in seeing how that works out.
Um, 1,000 coal miners in Brookwood, Alabama, are still on strike. They've been on strike since April 1st, making the strike more than eight months long. Fortunately, the community has been supportive. Local grocery stores are allowing the auxiliaries to buy groceries wholesale to stock the strike pantry, and donations supplied every single Christmas gift that was requested from striking families um, for their children. So that's, uh, you know, beautiful displays of solidarity there. But, of course, this is hard on the families. Uh, So support them if you can. Donate to the strike fund or the strike pantry fund. They could use it. um, They they could definitely use it. I I've been in touch with Lee Baines about um, about potentially going down there and um, recording and like live streaming a performance that he's going to give of Christmas songs to the um, to the uh, uh, to the auxiliary for their Christmas event on Sunday December eighteenth or nineteenth the Sunday of, of that weekend he's going to be down there performing some Christmas songs at their Christmas event um, it's going to be very cool uh, and you'll be able to donate in in the description of the YouTube video if we actually do if we actually are able to get down there and live stream it um, I've talked to Hayden and uh, Hayden is the auxiliary president she says that that you know she would like us to come and she's talked to other folks in the union and and that uh, you know that that they'd like us to be down there and and of course love to see Lee he is going to be playing at the Nick in Birmingham the Saturday before that so you should go down there and see him if you can but uh, what they really need, frankly, at this point, is for political leaders, elected and in the pundit class, to stand up for them against the New York investment firm-owned Warrior Met. Um, but you don't see that very often, because politicians and media folks love the boss, and they only love coal bosses, not coal miners. So you know we're gonna be we're gonna be keeping on top of that as well. Um, it's it's amazing how much Warrior Med is willing to sacrifice to try to break this union. Uh, they are $400 million lower in revenue than they were two years ago. And that's with steel prices like, what is it, double what it used to be? They mine metallurgical coal, which is used in the production of steel. Steel prices are much higher than they used to be. And their revenue is $400 million below what it was two years ago. Their revenue was $44 million in the last year. And two years ago, it was like $450 million or something like that. And, and, and so the reason that they're able to do that, of course, is because they're owned by these trillion-dollar investment firms. So they really need support from the public, from politicians, political leaders, um, uh, and, and, and people in the media – because they're not being treated right, and, and, and the game is rigged against them, unfortunately. Additionally, two days ago, a Tuscaloosa County judge again extended an unconstitutional ban on the striking coal miners' right to peaceably assemble and picket Warrior Met Coal. I'm not talking about like before, where the judge said, okay, only six or ten or eleven of y'all can picket at one time. No, the judge has completely banned picketing. Of course, free speech warriors have been extremely quiet about the rights of the 1,000 Alabama coal miners. They have more important things to talk about, like making fun of Fauci and defending Chris Cuomo for trying to help his brother get away with being a sex pest. That was a surprising one to me. Uh, So (laughs) we're going to be talking to Zach Patton 
with the International Longshore and Warehouse Union about supply chains on the other side of this break. Uh, so stay tuned. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Work sucks. We know. But you can make it better by organizing with your fellow workers. For more information, call or text the Huntsville Industrial Workers of the World at 256-651-6707. Support for this program also comes from the Iron Workers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower-than-average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Iron Workers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Iron Workers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256 383 3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. Welcome back. My name is Jacob Morrison. I'm here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller. It is Saturday. December 4th, 2021, and uh, we just wrapped up finish, uh, talking about some local stories. If you missed part of the program and want to go back and watch it later, you can go to YouTube. You can find all of our past broadcasts on YouTube at The Valley Labor Report uh, or um, anywhere you find your podcasts at The Valley Labor Report. Next, we're going to be talking about supply chains with Zach Patton. He is the he is a a member of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, ILWU. Um Zach, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today and sorry it's a little bit later. I got carried away. <laughs> no worries. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, oh, and thanks for jumping on like so early. It's it's like uh, uh, it's like eight o'clock on a Saturday over where you're at on the West Coast. So that's gross. Um, so we've all heard a lot about supply chains lately, and most of us still don't know anything. I would uh, put myself in that category. And talking to you yesterday, preparing for this conversation, you said that uh, that you've actually been learning a lot um, about kind of the bigger picture, even though you've been doing this for years and your father was a longshoreman. Um, so can you kind of help us help us understand, like, what are some of the narratives that are floating out there and and like what is the reality on the ground about this supply chain issue? Sure. Let me just bring up two headlines real quick about uh, just kind of that exemplify some of this trend. One is from the Washington Examiner in October. This headline says lazy crane operators making two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year exacerbating port crisis truckers say. 
This other one from the New York Post also in October says to please unions, Biden refuses to automate ports fueling supply chain woes. So there's this idea that somehow uh, for lots of different rationales that what's going on with the supply chain and the backups at the ports uh, is somehow longshore or dock workers fault, uh, either solely to blame or disproportionately to blame. Uh, and I'm here to say otherwise. Uh, I don't think that that's true. Um, as soon as you start to like scrutinize those claims, even like a little bit and just kind of think about like the bigger picture, uh, it's a supply chain like the ports and the few West Coast ports and the port of LA Long Beach in particular isn't the only part of a chain, right? It's got lots of different right. links. And what's become really, really clear, um, part, especially as like a result of this just-in-time shipping model that we have adjusted to with the global economy in the last couple of decades, uh, is that as soon as any number, one of those links uh, breaks or weakens, the whole thing falls apart. And so while ports might be uh, among or the like most heavily concentrated um you know, notes or sites of uh, the logistics and shipping industry. They're more visible, especially if you live in a port city, like with those giant hammerhead cranes that define the skyline of places like Seattle, Tacoma, where I live, uh, Los Angeles, Oakland. They're more visible and they're easier to see. And so when you hear all this stuff about how the supply chain is falling apart, I guess it's understandable. You're naturally going to look at the ports and so then who do you blame is port workers, which is uh, not exclusively dock workers or longshoremen, longshore workers, whatever you want to call us. Um, but it's an easy way out. And I think it also serves um, other ends as well. Right, right. Well, the 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 easy out um, is certainly being taken by some. And, and you know, I think that, that here and in a lot of places, actually, the, the narrative hasn't gotten out a whole lot and or as much as maybe it, as you see it being actually a longshoreman. I, I think that there's just kind of a general like what's going on? You know, it's like very mystified, um, even even to like myself. And, and uh, it, it, it's very kind of difficult to understand. But there was there was one there was an article that you sent me from the L.A. Times that uh was there was a bit in there that absolutely flabbergasted me. And it, and it was this here, and I'll go ahead and read it. Um, in previous years, those companies, being the shipping companies, had a financial incentive to unload their ships as quickly as possible to free up capacity for more voyages. But the eight to tenfold increases in prices, which, I mean, to, like... Before a shipping container cost two thousand dollars to ship, and now it co- and, and then it cost twenty thousand, and now it's like fifteen thousand or some, something like that. Mm-hmm. The eight to ten fold increases in prices mean that a carrier can double its revenue even at twenty percent capacity. And with that amount of money coming in, idle ships at ports such as Los Angeles and Long Beach barely scratch the bottom line, and in fact might prove good for business if they mean that the companies can keep prices high. That was bonkers. That, like, t- I, I couldn't believe it when I read that. Because some, to the extent that these alternate, um, to the extent that these alternate 
narratives exist. Like, it is focused on the workers. Like, oh, the workers, they make too much money. Oh, the workers, they don't want to work. Um, oh, the workers, they're, they're, they're keeping people from being hired. But, like, none of that is true. I mean, y'all make good money, but not nearly as much as the bosses make. And, not, and, and you know, when, especially when you consider the profits that are in this, that, that they're getting right now. It's huge. They can obviously afford to pay you what you're being paid and more. You have been lobbying. The union has been lobbying for more people to be hired. The union has been lobbying for more people to be hired 24-7 in second and third shifts. And who's not doing that? It's the companies, right? Right. So um, one myth I think that's worth addressing is these claims about how that there's like a, there's a labor shortage on the docks. That's not true. Uh, this has died down in the last couple of weeks, but I remember um, a few weeks or a few months ago, there was lots of people kind of chattering on Twitter about, oh, we need to bring in the National Guard to uh, alleviate congestion on the docks. That's silly for a number of reasons. Uh, National Guard, people in the National Guard, soldiers, uh, aren't dock workers. They don't know how to operate this equipment. So if you're trying to move this stuff out of there as quick as possible, you should hire people who actually do it and know how to do it quite well, which is us. Um, but secondly, just that, that that's not like the problem. There's not like a shortage of people to move stuff. There's a shortage of places to move stuff. Like we're just literally out of room on the terminals. And so this is part of uh, what you were kind of citing about how the cost of a shipping container has jumped up from 20,000 or 10, sorry, 2000 to 20,000. And it's kind of come back down a little bit, but it's still way more than it needs to be. and never has been before. The other thing that they're doing uh, and they're claiming that's because of like the shortages. And so they're forcing like a bidding war between different companies that are trying to ship their products across the Pacific ocean. So they're extorting um, and just ruthlessly exploiting like other players in uh, the global economy. But one of the things that like the most egregious things that they're doing is this thing called detention fees where typically if so, if a trucking firm or a truck driver has like a container that they take out, they have a couple of days to get it unloaded at the warehouse or distribution center or wherever they're taking it and then bring back an empty container that will then stay in the terminal for however long it is until it gets reloaded onto a ship and send it back to China or Japan or wherever it's going, right? Um, if you hold onto that can for too long, you get like a late fee, like the way that you used to for uh, like a movie at Blockbuster, right? Now what's happening is the um, terminals are so backed up that there's nowhere to bring in an empty container. There's just literally no room. And so that truck driver will get turned away and they like are not allowed to return it by the terminal operator. Many of whom are actually directly owned by the shipping companies themselves. Um, and then they find them anyway. And they hit these guys with like a detention fee for a can that they're trying to return and did return on time if we would have been accepted. And so now they're making additional prices off of that. That LA Times story does a great job of covering just all the different ways that these shipping companies have found uh, new ways to make profit, which is not through effectively and speedily moving cargo. Typically profits are found entirely in like what we call turnaround time in the industry. Like a ship doesn't make any money when it's sitting at anchor or sitting at the dock, the faster it gets unloaded and reloaded with new cargo. And that's onto the next port. That's where all the profits are found. But now that there's all these snarls and hangups in the supply chain, they've found other ways to make new money um, and more than they ever have in their entire history is like there's been reports that have shown that just in like the third quarter, the entire shipping industry has bumped up to, I think, like $48 billion in profits. Uh, CMA CGM, which is a French based carrier, um, 
in the third quarter this year compared to last year had a bump from 567 million to 5.6 billion in just one year's time. And that previous wow. third quarter was also like one of their best on record as well. So they're making more money than they ever have uh, just like unfathomable riches. And so, you know, I think people should be uh, suspect and critical about a lot of the dominant narratives that are out there, which are pointing fingers in the wrong direction. Right. I, when I, that was another thing that really, I, the, the fact that truckers are being charged detention fees for not giving a shipping company shipping containers that they won't take. I mean, that, that was insane. Like, how is that even legal? I don't know. That's a good question. It shouldn't be. (laughs) I mean, oh, wow. That, that's, and so, the one of the things that um that has has come up is that y'all's negotiations for your for your contract is going to be up this summer i mm-hmm. believe is that right that's right yeah and the companies are asking you to extend your extension of the contract you had already extended your contract to appease the companies and they're asking you to extend that extension and the union has said no the workers have said no you're not we're not going to do that we're going to go into negotiations and we're going to get a new contract Mm. um explain to us why the companies want to extend the extension and why that's not a good deal for workers or consumers Sure. I'll just say real quick, uh, I'm not an uh, officer or like an elected representative or spokesperson for the union. So I don't want to get too much into kind of internal uh, IOW business. This is all just out in the open, though. But so I'll just kind of cover that. But so, yeah, the IOW contract uh, with the Pacific Maritime Association or the PMA, which is a uh, group that represents all the different shipping and stevedoring companies at all 29 ports uh, on the West Coast, it covers about I think 22,000 full and part-time uh, dock workers at all of those ports. So it's one, it's a master uh, industry agreement. We don't negotiate port by port or company by company. Um, that expires on July 1st of 2022. Uh, like you said, we're currently on a three-year extension um, that we voted on, I think, in 2018. Um, that's already on top of a five-year contract. That five-year agreement is longer than we typically uh, negotiate in the first place since so having a three-year extension on top of that is absolutely unprecedented in our 80 plus year long history as the ILWU. Uh, and now the shipping companies want an additional one year extension off of that. And they say that it's because negotiations uh, are going to come with slowdowns and it's going to jeopardize like an already hurting uh, economy and blah, blah, blah. They have like their excuses uh, about why the real reason is they're trying to get us to take an extension, even though, we have lots of unresolved issues uh, that dock workers have wanted to address for several years. Our international president, Willie Adams, actually comes out of my local, out of uh, Tacoma, Washington, he's in San Francisco oh. now, wrote like a really good, strongly worded letter uh, back to the PMA about mm-hmm. why we need to negotiate and specifically pointing out that a big part of this problem, you know, I don't like the framing that there's been uh, like labor shortages in like other parts of the industry. Like there's, not, like there's a good article that just came out the other day that there's not like a uh, trucker shortage. There's a wage shortage. There's a shortage of like good conditions, but Willie pointed out in this letter, um, making quite clear to the PMA that, 
you know, maybe if other jobs in the supply chain were better, if these other workers like at an Amazon fulfillment center or port trucker had a union and had access to collective bargaining, uh, these jobs would be a lot better and you wouldn't have such a hard time filling them and people would dedicate to themselves to sticking out and working these jobs because they wouldn't be such miserable poverty jobs. And so we're not going to pass up on that and lower the lower the bar for these shipping companies just to make even a couple more billion dollars. So, so it's a unanimous no from like every single, um, every single corner of the ILW's longshore division that no, the union's not going to take an extension and we're going to go into bargaining in a couple months. Yeah. And that's been, and, and that's borne out like the fact that there's, you know, it's not, not really a labor shortage in these other supply chain industries. It's a, it's a compensation and, and good job shortage. Um, in a couple of different ways. One, we can see that UPS has not had an issue with uh, with labor shortages nearly like their competitors uh, because they pay literally almost twice as much as their competitors like FedEx and Amazon. Um, and as a result of that higher compensation, which is a result of collective bargaining uh, by the Teamsters, um, they have they've been able to keep their positions filled and their um their on-time delivery rate has stayed basically the same while FedEx and Amazon has like plummeted mm-hmm. same can be said for the postal service where um and then if we look at, at at truck drivers the average compensation for truck drivers over the past i saw a graph that was just mind blowing the other day it showed like a 50% decrease in compensation for truck drivers over the past 50 years in real dollars like when you adjust for inflation they're making 50 percent less than they used to which is insane and makes sense that people don't want to be truck drivers if they're making 50 percent less than they used to and they're in an industry that people are constantly saying is going to be automated away in five or ten years why would you want to do that why would you want to spend time training yourself in a job where you get paid like crap. You have to take on all this debt in a lot of cases because you're quote unquote an independent contractor and you've got to buy this hundred, two hundred thousand dollar machine that you'll maybe never be able to pay off or have or, or be have that debt for years, not get compensated well, and then be out of a job in five to ten, fifteen years. It's just not a good deal for people. And so they are not taking that deal, and now companies are saying, oh, no, it's the workers' fault, and of course it's not. Um, you mentioned something in the contract negotiations, about the contract negotiations, which I feel is a, is a good place to, to, to wrap it up, which is that the company is worried they don't have the leverage that they used to. And that ties into a point you made on Twitter the other day, that compensation and wages is not based on, you know, whatever people like to think it's based on merit or or ingenuity or how hard you work or things like this. I mean, of course, you know, to some extent, maybe we can say that those things are factors, but the biggest factor is power and leverage. Right. And uh, and because of the power and leverage that dock workers have through one, their important position in the logistics chain and also through the solidarity that they have formed over the 80 years of the union being a thing they have been able to negotiate good contracts and we are going to see you negotiate a good contract this summer talk to us about why it is that that power and leverage and collective bargaining is actually like 
a more important determinant of how much you make than like how hard you work. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. So I'll just kind of decouple this from talking about like ports. And I think this is just a good point about like workers and unions and the labor movement in general. Um, here's a great example. Like if hard work is like how you got rich, like why are farm workers poor? Right. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, and you could go on down the list and look at every, uh, or the importance of the job. How important is is farm work? That's incredibly important. It's more right, important like, yeah. than like most of the BS jobs that people have sitting on a computer. Yeah. If we don't have food, like we're all going to die. Like that <laughs> is like the most, like that's the most important work. Um, and it's degraded and undignified. And like you think about all like the horrible, like racist stereotypes that are deeply embedded mm-hmm in u.s society about how we talk about farm workers about how the way that there's uh federal labor legislation has carve outs to deliberately not protect farm workers and so on and so forth so like and everybody knows that like working in a field is much harder work than just about uh most anything you could imagine um and this is work that is like not in turn like valued by um our society but what I want to say about kind of this question about um, power and leverage and unions is a lot of the times like the more conventional uh, kind of mainstream uh, like appeal that union uh, union advocates or union organizers will make is they'll say like, um, you know, unions give workers a voice. They give workers a seat at the table. Those things are hmm. true. I'm not disputing that. I don't think that that's actually what's like the most important thing about Unions, And I think it also runs the risk of like misunderstanding what's actually at stake is that unions, uh, workers coming together as a group is about power. The boss Mm. has it when you don't have a union. And so they're able to dictate the terms and conditions of your employment, typically running their workplaces like a dictatorship where everything comes from the top down. That's another thing, too. It's like we got to talk about this like. In the United States, we always love to clamor on about like, oh, I got my rights. Like, this is a democracy, blah, 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 blah. Workplaces are like the most undemocratic place in like U.S. society. Uh, You check all of your rights at the door when you go to work and you take orders from the top down. Like, they're deeply like, they're just not not like not democratic. They're anti-democratic institutions. And it's because workers don't have power. And that's like exactly like what unions are about is actually like building power for workers so they can check that otherwise unchecked power of their bosses and make changes in the workplace. And so I think, you know, again, it's like, yes, that does give you like a seat at the table, like the bargaining table. It does give you like a voice. But even if you have those two things, but still don't actually have any real power, like I don't really know what good that actually is. And so... And anyway, specifically to your question about ports, there's like a popular term that gets talked about, about like choke points, right? That certain kinds of workers mm-hmm. have particular leverage just by the nature of the industry or the workplace that they work in. And so the reason that dock workers get paid really well in the U.S. isn't because our employers are nice and they care about us. And it's not even because we like work really hard or that our job is dangerous. Both of those things are definitely true. So we absolutely should get paid well. Um, mm-hmm. But the reason that we do is because we've, organized and fought so i know you're reading harvey schwartz's solidarity stories right now like you know and other people who know our history know that people died literally fighting for the things that we have six people murdered murdered in 1934 for us to like win union recognition and so it's through struggle and through power and we've been able to maintain that and 
I don't think that we or any other worker who has it, even if it's just a little bit of power, should forfeit that for any reason. Exactly. The, and, and I have finished, uh, I, I finished a few weeks ago, Solidarity Stories by Harvey Schwartz. I would highly recommend people check that out. I don't know if you can buy it online anymore or, or where you would buy it, um, but it's good. It's really good. It's a, it's a collection of interviews with ILWU members um, from, you know, the, from the 30s on through the 2000s. It's really, it's a fascinating read. And I love, I always love hearing from normal people like working people even you know of course i like to talk to people in leadership with unions and 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 i like to hear from people in leadership with unions especially when they come from the rank and file as most union leaders do but i i love hearing from from people who actually do the job day in and day out and that's a really cool thing about solidarity stories as you talk to like normal ass folks who <laughs> who do longshore work and um and you get to hear what they say and that's uh and that's something that 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 the media in this country doesn't do enough of. Uh, they they really prize people who have these fancy titles and uh, all the BS that comes with that. And it's it's not warranted the respect that these people have because they have these fancy titles or because they make a lot of money. Um, they maybe the argument could be made that they deserve less respect. In fact, <laughs> so uh, so Zach, do you have anything else to uh, or Adam? Did you want to ask Zach anything before we let him go? Uh, no, I just wanted to say I thought that was an excellent discussion, and I really appreciate your emphasis on power. And I think that's something that – I mean, you've echoed a lot of the common themes we have on this show in our discussion of, of how anti-democratic our workplaces are and how labor movement politics is first and foremost about building power. Uh, and adjusting the balance of power we have in our society and our economy. So great stuff, Zach. Uh, really excited that you came on and shared with us. Uh, love to hear from folks who are on the ground. And, you know, it's kind of helped me to understand this supply chain issue that we're all talking about and dealing with in the stores. So thanks for that. And, and make sure you uh, plug anything you have to plug today so folks can check you out and, and you know, keep tabs on you. Thank you. I will make one plug on the point about like uh, power uh, for workers. Uh, I got to give a shout out to my friend. I think you guys know him too, but Peter Cole, Professor Peter Cole and his book, mm-hmm. Dock Worker Power, um, which really explores this concept. It's a comparative history of the Dockers Union in South Africa and the ILWU here on the U.S. West Coast, specifically Local 10 in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. But it's a uh, um, if you want to hear more about this kind of question about containerization and automation and what that has to do with power in this case for like the bosses and like the political kind of angle about why employers want to automate longshoremen out of existence. Uh, it's not because it's more efficient. It's not because it's more effective. It's fundamentally about power. And Peter's book shows that the West coast was a testing ground uh, for that new technology when it was first introduced in the 1950s, but it also like does a great job of covering uh, our social and political history and talking about all the many different things that the IWU has done uh, to use our leverage and use our power to build solidarity and help build power for other workers here in the United States, like supporting Dr. King and the civil rights movement to uh, boycotting South African cargo in the seventies and eighties to help uh, topple the apartheid regime and get Nelson Mandela and South Africa free. But anyway, so that's doc worker power. You can get that from the university of Illinois press by professor Peter Cole, you should follow him on Twitter too. Great guy, great scholar, 
um, and I think really taps into uh, kind of like these larger discussions, both about making sense about what's happening in the supply chain too, but also about like why unions really uh, matter, which is about power and democracy. Thanks for talking to us, Zach. I appreciate that. Uh, I believe MLK is an, was an honorary member of the ILWU, if I, isn't that right? That's right. He was sworn in by Local 10 in, uh, I think, September of 1967, just a few months before he was assassinated uh, on a picket line uh, with yep. striking uh, sanitation workers. Cool as hell. Thanks for talking to us, Zach Patton, a member of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, ILWU. You can check him out on Twitter at Zach Patton underscore, Z-A-C-K-P-A-T-T-I-N underscore on Twitter. He is a good follow. Uh, let's take a break really quick, pay some bills, hear from our sponsors, let me use the restroom, and then we're going to talk about the question, are unions good? We'll be right back. This is the Valley Labor Report with Jacob Morrison and Adam Keller. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys of Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs are proud to represent working people in Alabama and across the Southeast. They have over 100 years of experience representing injured workers in workers' compensation, personal injury, and disability claims. Let their attorneys help you when you get injured on the job. You can find them at www.mtandj.com or 855-617-9333. Let Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs help you when you get injured on the job. Again, the website is www.mtandj.com or the phone number 855-617-9333. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services from other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at ibew136.org. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. Welcome back. My name is Jacob Morrison. I'm here with my co-host and fellow agitator, Adam Keller. You're listening on Saturday, December 4th, 2020, 21. We just heard from our advertisers. We appreciate their support. If you want to support us as a listener, you can support us with a monthly donation on patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. Uh... That's a good way to support us. We, uh, uh, where other people rely on big wigs and big businesses and things like that, we rely on unions and listeners and worker-led organizations. So we would appreciate your support if you want to support us on patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. Um, Brother Cecil Roberts is the international president of the United Mine Workers and the union representing the coal miners in Brookwood that are on strike right now. As the strike has continued, I've gone to many of their events. I've gotten close to a few of the coal miners and their families. And I've had the opportunity to hear Cecil speak on many occasions. And his favorite way to end a speech is this. If you want higher pay, join a union. If you want better health care... Join a union. If you want to retire with dignity, join a union. And if you just want to tell the boss to kiss your ass, 
join a union. And all this is based on the reality of being a union worker versus being a non-union worker in America today. Union workers make, on average, 20% more than non-union workers. Now, maybe you say, Jake, that doesn't take into account this or that or whatever. And okay, fine, let's stipulate that. The Economic Policy Institute found that when you account for other factors of employment, such as education, experience, blah, 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 you still get an 11% wage premium, which is uh, quite a lot. Pretty damn good, I would say. And that doesn't account for other benefits like health care and retirement. And, of course, union workers have better health care and better retirement. We know that union workers are basically the only people in this country left with a pension. And, of course, we don't just have statistics. We can point to recent examples. As a result of 2,000 UAW-represented John Deere employees, they more than uh, going out on strike... They more than doubled the offer that the company was going to give them, resulting in a 20% pay increase over the term of the contract, a better pension plan, better health care, a weakening of the two-tier system of employment at John Deere, the killing of a proposed third tier by John Deere, and an $8,500 signing bonus. UPS drivers, as we mentioned earlier in the show, make nearly twice as much money as FedEx drivers. This has allowed UPS to survive the quote-unquote labor shortage much better than its rivals, with UPS continuing to provide on-time deliveries while competitors such as FedEx and Amazon have been seriously lagging, according to Bloomberg News. They are also significantly less likely to be hurt on the job than FedEx and Amazon drivers. And right here in North Alabama, machinist union represented ULA workers make about twice as much money as the same workers make right across the street doing the same job for the same parent company. And they make about twice as much money as my non-union machinist father. By any metric, I would say that these workers are financially successful. Now, what about other metrics of Success, Maybe, let's say, independence. In a union job, you have what's called, or in almost every union job, of course, you know, every contract's going to be different. But one of the first things that unions negotiate for in a contract is a provision of just cause disciplinary actions. Meaning that, unlike every single other worker in the, in the state of Alabama, if you have a union bargaining a uh, union collective bargaining agreement with your employer that has a just cause provision in it which almost all of them do you cannot be fired for any reason or no reason at all if you work at any other company without one of these contracts you can be fired for any reason or no reason at all even if your employer purports to have some sort of due process why because the due process is totally created by the company and can be dispensed with at the behest of the company, whereas a union-negotiated collective bargaining agreement with just cause in the contract obligates an employer to make a good-faith uh, uh, good faith process of, uh, of due process before terminating you, meaning you have to be terminated for just cause, for actually being bad at your job. Does this protect bad workers? No. Because at any job, you can be fired for being a bad worker. 
At any, the, all that the boss has to do is prove that your performance is fireable by the standards of the contract that they agreed to. That they agreed to. If the boss has any job, it is to keep up job performance. And there is a way to discipline employees and even fire them, if necessary, under any union-negotiated collective bargaining agreement. But you can't be fired just because your boss pissed in his Cheerios that morning. Okay? So you can speak your mind more easily. You can present ways to make the company more efficient because you're more likely to be able to challenge, to feel comfortable challenging your boss when he says something incredibly stupid, as we know that bosses tend to do. <laughs> I think that's a really important point right there, Jacob, because uh, folks experience harassment in the workplace. Yes. Folks experience discrimination in the workplace. Yes. Uh, and while sure there are laws on the books you know, against those sort of actions, whether it's, you know, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act or even state and local regulations. At the end of the day, if you're an at-will employee who has just been sexually harassed or racially mm -hmm. discriminated against, uh, you know in the back of your head you can be dismissed. Right. And even if it is in retaliation for addressing your harassment or, or discrimination you've experienced, the burden of proof is on you, the employee. Mm -hmm. And the you know the deck is stacked against you, and so I think that's why uh, you know just cause protections, ensuring that workers have due process on the job before being disciplined, is an issue that it's not just about basic you know fairness mm -hmm. uh, with someone's livelihood being on the line. Of it, it, it connects to so many other broader issues in the workplace uh, that are connected to our society, such as sexual harassment and racial, gendered, religious discrimination, having the having the knowledge that you are guaranteed a certain amount of due process uh, before right. being just arbitrarily dismissed or suspended without pay uh, makes it a little bit easier for you to protect yourself and protect your colleagues mm -hmm. uh, against unlawful actions and unethical actions. Exactly. Exactly. And that brings us to our next guest. Michael Yaffe on Twitter a couple days ago shared an article where U.S. Senator from Alabama Tommy Tupperville reacted to news about Amazon breaking the law and illegally interfering with their workers' right to a free and fair election, and thus a new election was called. He said that a principal reason that the workers at Amazon voted against the effort was so that they could keep their wages instead of paying dues to union bosses. And so there are a couple problems with that, as presented by Tommy Tupperville, for one we just explained how the dues that you pay, the dues that you pay as a union member are like 1% of your paycheck or something like that, okay? It's not very much, all right? And what you get in return, if uh, of course, the workers are the union. What you get in return is up to you, uh, ultimately. Do you have the willingness to build power on the job to fight the boss and get what you deserve? Okay, and if if you if you just say, oh look, we're a union, but then you don't do anything, then you don't get anything. Okay, it's up to you. You're the union, but we can see statistics. We can see individual stories that show that uh, union membership pays dividends. Of course, of course it does. And union bosses is just a silly term. <laughs> I mean, even the most top down and bureaucratic union in the country 
still has their top leaders elected by some mechanism. And even if even if it's like not the most democratic that it could be and we are are not shy about criticizing unions where they need to be more transparent or open or democratic we've had union reformers on the show before plenty of times to talk about exactly that about reforming within the union but any union leader is elected any union leader has to have some sort has some sort of check on his power by the membership every red cent of union dues, every cent that they are uh, 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 that is expended from union dues is ratified by the membership. You have nowhere near that amount of control over your actual boss, and of course, Tommy Tupperville knows that, and so does everybody else. And uh, so he shared that Michael Yaffe did, and he tweeted, "This is just another example of collectivist versus individualist thinking. When you join a union, you're defined more by the group." than as an individual worker. Why would anyone want to sacrifice their individual success in this way? I have just laid out exactly why that doesn't make any sense. Because, of course, by any metric, financially, union members are more successful individually. And by any metric, personally, union members are more successful because we are not bound by a crippling fear of our boss because they can't fire us <laughs> because that because we are willing to speak out they can fire us if we're bad at our jobs but not for any other reason or you know if we're bad at our jobs or we sexually harass people or, or we do like commit a crime or something of course they can fire us for those reasons but they can't fire us because they don't like us or because there's a personality conflict he also said that some will say it's the only way to make a fair, safe, and decent working place. Maybe that was the case 100 years ago, but most of that has been solved through legislation. And I find that, like, astounding because Michael Yaffe is a conservative and he hates the government, ostensibly. But here he's telling people to rely on legislation and rely on the government to enforce these things uh, to protect workers. Where what I'm saying, as somebody generally on the left, is I'm saying you can't trust the government. You can't. You can't trust the government. I'm not uh, I'm not opposed to legislation or laws or regulations that make workers lives better. Sure. But ultimately, you're going to be much safer organizing yourselves amongst yourselves with your brothers and sisters on the job to protect your rights and increase and make your life better uh, than you are going to be relying on the government. And Um, let me just add there, in terms of legislation, I think it's worth remembering that this is legislation that was achieved through public organizing because (laughs) the labor movement could put the pressure on, you know, President FDR or Congress uh, throughout the 50s and 60s. And this is legislation that has been opposed every step of the way uh, by the right wing in this country. Mm-hmm. And, and it's legislation that has been steadily eroded for the past five decades. As union membership has declined and as worker power has declined, boss's power has increased and they've chipped away at these gains that so, we've made through the legislative process. You're exactly right. I, I mean, it, it, so if folks want to pretend as if basically all labor issues, workplace issues, issues for working class people in America was solved... Uh, before we were born, um, I, I'm really not sure what economy they live in, uh, because I think most folks who have to sell their labor for a living, which is the vast majority of people in this country and on this planet, uh, certainly have some issues to be resolved. 
Right, right, exactly. And somebody in our comments section said that wage theft is a big problem. More money is stolen from stolen from workers via wage theft than all other property crime combined. It's illegal to steal, but the bosses do it far more than workers do it, and the yep. government's not fixing the problem. So yeah, anyway, I mean, look, this is so. We've only got about. 12 minutes left. I do want to give Yaffe some time to defend this. So we've got him on the line. So Yaffe, I appreciate your time. Help me understand, like, what the hell you mean. It doesn't make any sense. So I tend to believe in the power of the individual. And I believe that, yes, there might have been a time where unions were much more necessary in the beginning. But we have a pretty thriving economy right now. And I think overall workers in all segments of the economy do pretty well right now. And as you mentioned, union union membership has declined overall. And what I talk about the collectivist thinking is I would rather make my way up in a company as an individual and an individual negotiating with my boss, individual negotiating uh, with my management, trying to show my valuable as an ind- that I am valuable as an individual to the workplace than I would be as a part of a union where, once again, everything is done through the group. And you talked about. You believe that's necessary because of power dynamics, because it gives you more power versus the business. I tend to believe more in the power of the individual and more in the power of the marketplace to work these things out, where if that business treats you badly in a thriving economy, which will be thriving with less union membership, you will be able to get another job because they have to compete for labor, just like they have to compete for consumers. So that's kind of where I was going along with that. Yeah, so... You would rather individually negotiate and try to prove your worth or whatever to the boss, um, even if it results in lower wages, worse health care, a worse retirement, uh, a less safe working environment, and a more more restrictive working environment. Because the thing that I laid out that seems to me to be the clincher, especially as somebody who – like, I value the individual. I am very, like – I am very anti-hierarchy in that I do not like being told what to do. And I think that Mm -hmm. most Alabamians are like that. And as a person in a union workplace and knowing people in union workplaces, we have to put up with much less nonsense than people in in non-union workplaces do because we have those job protections, those due process protections on the job. And so we can speak our minds where something is going wrong or where we don't like something without fear of unjust retaliation as an individual even through the union as well. But as an individual, you have more protections. Well, see, I'm not sure I buy that. I mean, I understand what you're saying, that you feel like you're a part of the group, you're a part of the union, you have more protections, but you're also beholden to that union in a lot of ways. So there are a lot of times unions make deals with uh, the business owner, with the CEO that really don't make sense. And it kind of prevents you from doing the good job you want to do, from getting ahead more than you want to do because – well, you have these deals with the unions and you're a part of the union and you're no longer seen as an individual, but you're seen. And also unions are often trying to tell the bosses what to do. So if I'm a boss of a company. Yes, that's good. And very I, good. I, see it, I very much support workers telling the boss what to do. So very good. Yeah. And I, <laughs> and see, I, I really don't because I think in some ways the boss. So you like being told be what to, to tell do. workers what to do. What's that? You like being told what to do. In certain situations, I think the boss does know, and the boss should get the final say, and the boss 
knows how to run a company and can tell workers what to do in a situation. And that gives the right to that business owner that it's their property. It's their private property. They made a deal with uh, the employer or the employee and they hire them. There's the deal. And part of that deal is, yes, you have to listen to the boss. I don't think it's unreasonable. And I've never been in a union and I've never been in a situation where in my, who I work for, they were telling me unreasonable things to do. You know, I could talk with the boss, but ultimately they have the final say. And I understand they're doing what's best for the business. And I'm okay with that. And in a lot of ways, if, go ahead. Well, Bosses do have the final say, even in a union, because like you said, in our the way that our economy works is that the people who own the business own the business and ultimately have the final say in what happens with it. So if if an employer is obstinate and says, I want to pay you seven dollars an hour and I'm not going to pay you anymore, the union can't like we don't have like we don't bring guns to the bargaining table, Yaffe. Uh, we, we bring our labor power. We bring the, the value that we give to the company, that we sell to the company. We bring that too. And so if the company says, if the company just, just sets a line down and says, I'm not going to do this, we have no way to like physically force them to, uh, the, the, what they agree to it willingly because our labor is, is, is more valuable than them not having it. They can always just not have a business. They can always even hire other workers. They can, but but we're there, and they can't hire a thousand workers right at a time, often. And so, you know, we have the power, and that's how that's how these things are actually done. Your power matters more than than whatever else. Well, yeah, and you're talking about uh, getting together as a group to get more power. I understand that. I understand it's sort of uh, how humanity can work. And I understand that even my dislike of unions in some ways, in some ways, unions are inevitable. So I understand I'm going against the grain here, but I am just much more a believer in right to work where the employees have the power to fire because they are the ones in charge. And when I was talking about legislation, that's not what I was saying. Okay, maybe go on. What was that? That's not what right to work means, but go on. Okay, well, explain to me what right to work means. Right to work. Is the government no, no, that you're thinking of at will employment, which every state in the union is basically an at will employment state. That's something right. that liberals in the in the north love to rag on places in the south that are right to work. Um, and they say right to work and they think that means that you can be fired for any reason or no reason at all. That's at will employment, which every state in the union is, and that Yankees love to to bash on southern states for because they don't know anything. At will employment means you can be fired for any reason or no reason at all. Right to work is the government coming in to contract negotiations between the union and the employer and saying you cannot agree to a clause that says that workers who are represented by the union and get the benefits that I've just laid out of the union membership, you cannot have a clause in that contract as a condition of employment that representation fees be paid to the union. The government is coming into private negotiations and saying this is something that you two private parties can't agree to. That's what right to work is. Gotcha. I understand. Well, uh, overall, I just think the thing that's best for, and we're, we're almost out of time, but I just think that the thing that's best for the, the worker, the best thing for the worker is a thriving economy. I think overall, a thriving economy does much better when individuals in the marketplace work over when unions 
have a lot more power and things are done through the group dynamic where I think it should be done more through an individual dynamic. And we can talk more about this later. I know we ran out of time. <laughs> yep. Thanks, Yaffe. That will wrap the show up for today. I'll give him the last word since we screwed him on the time. I appreciate your time, Yaffe. We'll definitely have to do it again. You've been listening to the Valley Labor Report. You can find us online anywhere. We'll see you next week.